Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie, and this is season two of the Future Work Playbook. Last season, we focused on the theme of return to the workplace during the pandemic. We covered technology companies that were addressing new opportunities to prioritize diversity and inclusion efforts, training deskless workforces, military training with virtual reality, and founders that are envisioning a new future in the workplace including the use of robots. And so to kick off season two of Future Work, we're looking at the life sciences and healthcare industries, diving in with companies that are building innovation, science-based developments and technologies for the betterment of human capital. So what exactly does that mean? Life sciences is an enormous field. And for this season's theme, we are looking at the crossover of how life sciences impact human capital and the rapid evolution that is continuing. Our conversations will address how life sciences and healthcare companies play an essential role in raising the bar of human capital through their products, their teams, and their discoveries. Our first guest are Dr. Vivian Lee, the president and head of health platforms for Verily Life Sciences, and her colleague, Christine Keurig, the company's global employment council. But before we start this discussion, I'd like to share some background on Verily Life Sciences. Verily Life Sciences is at the convergence of healthcare, tech, and science, combining disciplines to modernize healthcare for patients, providers, and payers. They are using leading technology, including artificial intelligence and data science to personalize care and improve chronic condition management. Their legacy as an alphabet company has allowed them to expand their work throughout their ecosystem and leverage a higher potential impact. To both of you, welcome. It's so wonderful to have you kick off our second season. We've been looking forward to this. Thanks, Natalie. Appreciate you having us. Thanks. So great to be with you. (laughs) Great. So I'd love to jump in and discuss the ever-changing landscape of the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's talk about Project Baseline. And uh, let me start with you, Dr. Lee. Verily was one of the first movers to support California in its efforts to jumpstart COVID testing sites. Can we start by having you tell us more about that, please? Sure, Natalie. It, it feels like a lifetime ago, but in early March of last year, you'll remember that the pandemic was really starting to, to make its impact on this country. And while people were getting sick and having to be hospitalized, we had this incredible crisis of a shortage of COVID testing. And we also had a shortage of things like personal protective equipment, gowns and gloves and masks. And many of the lab companies were struggling to get enough reagents to run the COVID test. And people were really starting to panic. And 
it was around that time that our company was charged with helping to solve this problem. And we began by working with the state of California and public health officials across the state, and then working with national partners like Rite Aid to extend across the country the ability to actually provide community-based COVID-19 testing. People could sign up online, they could walk up, get their COVID test. And, And the reason we were able to do that relatively quickly was because we had our clinical trials platform baseline. Part of this community-based testing program not only allowed people to get their tests, but also to opt in for COVID-19 research projects. And so during the course uh, over that, uh, the ensuing months, we signed up, I think, almost a couple of hundred thousand participants in COVID-19 research projects to do things like vaccine trials and antibody therapeutic trials. We also partnered with Pfizer and the Duke Clinical Research Institute to look at uh, what happened to our frontline healthcare workers who received the early Pfizer vaccine. And uh, you know, we, we were very proud of the work we did. We were able to test people, maybe perform four and a half million tests wow. across the country and, and offer this in English and in Spanish. And uh, we were very pleased to partner with Rite Aid again to be able to do this across the country. Wow, such critically important work. Uh, And I have a follow-up question, uh, if I may, Dr. Lee, on the subject of vaccines. Uh, You recently shared your thoughts on the White House vaccine mandate, as well as factors to consider with regard to return to work. I know our audience would love to hear from you on this issue. Right. And, and I know we are all really hoping to get back to as close to normal as we can be. Yes. Uh, right. So maybe to continue with the story that I was telling you about our community based testing in the health platforms part of Verily, we work with many employers and their employees all over the country. And so leading up to COVID, we had programs to help them manage their health, like chronic conditions, employees who might have diabetes or hypertension, or depression and so on. Uh, We even have a stopless insurance company actually for employers. And so when it became national news last year that we were supporting COVID testing for communities, these employers also reached out to us and said, hey, you know, you figured out how to do this. Can you help us get our employees back safely to work? Um, And then actually beyond employers, a bunch of universities also reached out to us. And so we ended up starting this company called Healthy at Work to support small businesses like biotech startups in the Valley to, you know, fortune 50 companies with thousands of retail stores all over the country and a bunch of universities as well. And through that program, which started as, you know, symptom checking and a whole wide range of testing options, we've now incorporated the components of what we need today to really manage employees and the workplace safely, which includes being able to upload vaccine cards so so employers can sort of get a sense of whether their employees are vaccinated or probably in short term be able to even report that if OSHA mandates that, as well as offering, again, the whole spectrum of testing opportunities. Uh, You know, a nurse can come around and do the testing or you can do it yourself as an employer. We can even send kids home to employees. And it's been a real partnership. And the, the challenging thing about COVID is that you just we could We can never really predict what this virus is going to do, but we do know that if we use the data science capabilities that we have and if employers are able to encourage their 
employees to get vaccinated or, or offering or offer the right frequency of testing, for example, they are able to keep their work sites safe. And so we, we just want to continue to support that going forward. Wow. What, what an in, incredible way to help with the return to the workplace. And I, so I have to, I have to turn to you, Christine, as employment counsel, I would love to hear from you how Healthy at Work ties in with state and federal requirements, because I know you and I have been living that, you know, for, for the last 18 months, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems like every single employment lawyer had a full-time job before COVID and then had a second full-time job um, addressing the, the pandemic. You know, if you go back to what Vivian was talking about, of, you know, I kind of think of it um, in some ways as sort of a darker time period back in March when people didn't really know, March of last year, when people didn't really know what this was and what we were dealing with. And, you know, employment lawyers were dealing with a cascade of state by state and locality by locality regulations and people were doing, you know, the shutdowns. And now, thankfully, as Dr. Lee has mentioned, we're in a very different phase of this pandemic, thank goodness. And what we're really seeing is the ability to manage return to work, return to school, for example, at large universities in a really smart manner. So as an employment counsel, that's really interesting to me so that that way my colleagues have an easier time of it and importantly, workplaces can stay healthy. And what this really means is if you take into account, for example, the new federal White House mandate, there's two components of that. There's one order that addresses federal government contractors, and then there's a different order that's mandating that OSHA come forward with some regulations to to implement the mandate that people be vaccinated at employers who have 100 or more employees. And some employers may have already had their own return to work policies that may have addressed vaccination and others may not. And so this is a really great opportunity for people to look at programs like Healthy at Work to enable them to track, as Vivian had mentioned, who's vaccinated and also um, be able to get on track with certain deadlines that may come up. So, for example, under the federal government contractor order, folks that are affected by that will have to be vaccinated by December 8th. And so you want to make sure, given the timeframes that it takes, if you have J&J, that's one and done. But if you Mm -hmm. have Moderna and Pfizer, those are going to be different timetables. And this will help you get your employee base on track for the timing that they need to hit. It will help you keep track of record keeping. You can, in the meantime, continue to deploy testing. Testing has been shown to be one thing that's really important, depending on the type of environment you're in. If you're on a factory floor setting, for example, versus you know a more traditional office place, you may want to do more testing, even on top of vaccination, to make sure that if people are asymptomatic and vaccinated, that they're not coming in and still sharing viral load that they were unaware of. Right. So there's a number of components here that Healthy at Work can really help with in terms of getting employers on track quickly in compliance with a lot of these mandates. I can easily see this being extraordinarily helpful for employers. And it, it is, everything is still shifting. This is this is great, Christine. Thank you. you know, can I add one more thing, Natalie? Please. Too? Yeah, um, please. There's also, in addition to the federal mandates, there are a host of things happening on a state and local basis. And so I'll use California as an example, since California tends to lead in a lot of different areas. And Cal OSHA has now come out 
with some COVID-related regs that will replace the ETS regarding COVID workplace. And in those proposed regulations, there are a number of different requirements that, again, are going to layer on top of some of the other requirements um, at the federal level. And one of the things that's required is that employees can no longer self-attest with regard to vaccination. Right. Instead, the employer is going to be required to keep vaccination records. And probably for as long as two years after the proposed sunset date for those regulations. So there are also localities that we've seen, particularly in California, that have added on different requirements regarding testing and masking. And those, as you mentioned, change all the time. And Healthy at Work's another way to help stay up to date and move forward with those types of requirements. So it's kind of layered upon layer, and it's a great solution to really help address some of that. Absolutely. And, you know, so many employers did decide to go with attestations, and that is going to be a real challenge. And and I know some employees will be frustrated about uh, again going through these processes. And and I'll tell you, you're 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 not at all wrong about different localities having different rules. It's not just state and federal requirements. I was in San Francisco this morning and of course masked everywhere indoors and arrived in Orange County and uh, you know people indoors not required to mask. So it is, I think we'll still continue to see a lot of that shifting. As I said, I think healthy work will be a very helpful tool for employers. I want to shift a little bit. You've also built the on duo and baseline platforms. We talked a little bit about the, the baseline platform, but for which Dr. Lee, you are leading the charge. And there've been companies like Limvongo, which was acquired for $18 billion by Teladoc last year for the platforms and solutions that manage chronic conditions. And Omada that has also raised over $250 million in funding. Verily launched these platforms that are tackling similar challenges, as well as integrating the best access to telemedicine with a wholly new patient experience in healthcare. Could you provide us more detail on those programs? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do that, Natalie. And and these programs have really become especially important since the pandemic when it's been so difficult for people who have chronic conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure to get into the clinic to see their doctors or nurses. And of course, they're the very people who are the most vulnerable to the the worst forms of COVID. So, you know, having access to digital technologies now has been really, really vital for these patients. So we are our, our on duo program really differentiated itself in the earliest days by having unique sensors. So the unique uh, technology to be able to uh, measure your blood sugar 24-7 with one of these continuous glucose monitor devices. So, you know, in the past, typically in order to check your blood sugar, if you're a person with diabetes, you'd have to prick your finger two or three times or five or six right. times a day, right, just to check your blood sugar. And with this new technology, which actually verily in a, in a kind of separate project has been developing for Dexcom, with these new technology, basically you have something the size of a key fob and you put it on your arm or in your abdomen. And now for the next couple of weeks, practically, you have a continuous 24-7 tracing of your blood sugar. And so for the individual with diabetes, what that means is they can see their blood sugar tracing throughout the day. 
They take pictures of their meals and snacks on their phone. And for the first time in their lives, they're actually able to make this visual association between what they're eating, how they're exercising or sleeping, you know, all of their behaviors and what it's actually doing to their blood sugars. It's, it's just completely transformative oh. to, to their whole understanding of their biology and their bodies. You know, you can imagine, right? And yeah. what's really amazing when we see it is we see how different individuals are. So when I was in medical school, you know, I was sort of taught if your blood sugar is this, doesn't matter what you look like, you get this much insulin. You know, there was like a little recipe formula that we all learned in medical school. Now, actually, when we see the data coming from uh, all of our patients, we see, wow, everyone is really different. I mean, if if the three of us on this call each ate a bowl of oatmeal or we had a cup of fruit, our blood sugars would actually change in a very different way. And so what happens with the, the program that we have is we actually are able to make really personalized insights. So with the photos of your meals, for example, well, maybe you don't need any AI to know that that, uh, you know, for me, let's say that that extra slice of pecan pie probably wasn't the best decision. <laughs> but there are other insights like, oh, you know, Vivian, we noticed for you two eggs and some toast is actually better than a bowl of cornflakes. Or for you, Natalie, you know, maybe soy milk is better in your coffee and skin milk is better in my coffee for my blood sugars. Right. So we can actually layer on these AI tools that can really help. And then we can offer the coaching, the texting, the video conferencing that really layer on that human touch, which is, of course, really vital. And, and during the pandemic, our on duo patients were able to ask us all of their questions about COVID. You know, what do I do? Should I still get in to see the doctor? It's going to affect my medications, you know, all of the questions that people had. So uh, this, this whole idea of being able to work with people on their the medical conditions that they have, but on their terms, you know, according to their schedule in ways that are really deeply personalized. That's really the nature of, of these programs that we offer. And, and um, Duo has expanded now. So we work with people with high blood pressure. We work with people who want to lose weight, people who actually want to continue to have better mental health and well-being, for example. And our, our data and our results are just showing just consistently really high satisfaction. People feel more in control of their conditions and they, they just do better. And it's really, really impressive. As a, as a physician, I'm so impressed with the, the kind of results we're able to see. Wow, this really is amazing and, and so exciting. And I think, you know, you, you raise such an interesting point with the examples of how different people react. And, and I think what we're finding with application of machine learning to data is that the availability and diversity of data streams really are critically important. And the possibility of driving this kind of change and recognition of how important that diversity is and in, in being able to apply them to an individual really does, I think, give us great hope for the future in treating various chronic conditions. So I, so I thank you so much for that. I think I now want to segue, if we could, into... Verily's recent acquisition of SignalPath and the company's overall outlook on investing inside the life sciences and healthcare industries. Can you talk about whoever wants to take this one, but I, I'd really love for us to talk about the significance of SignalPath and what it means for other future portfolio transactions. 
I can tell you this has been really exciting for the company for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, uh, Dr. Amy Abernathy, who recently headed up the FDA, joined the company in June, and she is heading up our baseline business. You heard Vivian talk a little bit about that business. And so this was actually an acquisition that occurred under her leadership um, to enhance the baseline business. In essence, what I can tell you is that Verily and Signal Path have had a shared vision to improve the way clinical studies are conducted. And it's really setting a new standard for real-world evidence generation. So basically, in a nutshell, the Signal Path platform will enhance our clinical trial platform, which will allow for more efficient design, startup, and oversight of clinical trials. And this is going to be incredibly impactful to help get solutions to market faster. Thank you for that, uh, Christine. And the world now has a new understanding of the importance of efficiency and speed in the current clinical trial paradigm, no doubt about that. So as you look to the future in the next five years or so, where do you see healthcare and the need for more diversity? And I'm really glad that we're sort of touching on this, the diversity of the data. Can you maybe address how life sciences will play a role in bridging clinical trials to innovation? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question. I think it's a really important one. And um, I know that for you and for me, it touches, and for Dr. Lee, it touches all of us personally. We're all in diverse communities. You and I are Latina and uh, Dr. Lee is here with us today as well. And so, um, you know, I think it's important to really think through and, and science is really starting to focus more on this issue. And for us, really, real world evidence is transforming clinical trials. For example, drugs are being... Uh, approved using real-world evidence, and through the use of such evidence, greater diversity in trials can be achieved. Also, it's essential for innovation across health platforms. So one thing that Verily is doing to respond, for example, is creating a Spanish language platform for Onduo. You've heard about the Onduo uh, platform earlier, in particular with regard to the impact it's had on things like diabetes and pre-diabetes. And this is incredibly important for a community like the Latinx community, um, where oftentimes, you know, diabetes does have a higher correlation for that community. And the Spanish language platform will enable us to reach out to those members more significantly. The other issue that I'd really like to, to touch on really quickly as well is patient trust. Patient trust is also um, something that will never go away in our industry. Patients really want to know that they can trust healthcare providers with their personal information. Privacy issues, data security, things that you and I see all the time cropping up everywhere across different legal settings are very key factors in the healthcare industry. And I'll say that Verily takes it incredibly seriously. We value our partners, our providers, our users, and that is something that is just imperative to us. I have to say, I love the Spanish language platform to reach more Latinx community And I also agree with you, Christine, just how critical patient trust is. It it really is key. And Dr. Lee, turning back to you, I saw that you recently conducted a study on depression. What can you tell us about mental well-being among the workforce in today's world? Well, thanks for that question, Natalie, because the work that we recently published started uh, several years back. And of course, with the pandemic, 
the challenges to the mental well-being among the workforce, among everyone, let's just say, has is just only, you know, continued to really be challenged. So we we started uh, really to think about this a few years ago when we became very interested in thinking about how can the same kinds of technologies that we were talking about for helping people, say, lose weight or manage their blood pressure or lower their cholesterol, how can those same kind of technologies be leveraged around mental well-being? And we did some research. I mean, we, we you know, sort of studied what had gone on in the past and recognized that, you know, one of the real challenges around certain conditions, like, let's say, depression, is that the condition just in and of itself means that you're just not as motivated to do things. And so it's hard to have people with depression get diagnosed. And it's really hard to have them get treatment because just the very nature of the, the disease sort of leads to apathy and, and anhedonia. You just don't, don't have as much energy or pleasure in doing things. And so we had the hypothesis that maybe we could make it a little bit easier that any given smartphone, there's built in all these different sensors, you know, that you use for GPS or you use for, you know, that listen to you or they can do all kinds of things, right? There are all sure. sorts of sensors that are built in the phone. And we thought, well, maybe we can use some of those sensors with the permission of the individual, you know, only if we get permission from them, but maybe we can use some of those sensors to help gauge their mood and to help gauge maybe how they're feeling so that potentially we can identify when people are slipping into depression or even be able to use some of those sensors to help give them feedback in terms of how they're doing on the path to recovery. And so we carried out a study that we just published recently. It involved uh, about 600 subjects, most of whom had depression and then a, a cohort of control subjects. And we had them report themselves, uh, you know, fill out the standard questionnaire that is used for assessing depression. But then we also collected all this information from their phones, again, all with their permission, of course. And we actually discovered that a number of the, the sensors, a number of the findings really did correlate with their overall mood. Uh, especially if you took all that information together, if you took all the data together. And so, for example, some things might not surprise you, like their sleep patterns. So, you know, you can kind of tell how long people are sleeping based on when they're using the phone and when they aren't using the phone. Or ambient noise level, for example, or their location. One of the biggest predictors actually turned out to be a component that we added in the project, which was having people keep a voice diary. So, you know, just talk into their phone about their day. And we could do a little bit of sentiment analysis. You know, we could sort of analyze the kinds of words that they were using, for example, or the pace at which they were speaking, or even just how long their diary entry was. And those correlated very highly with their mental well-being. And actually, it turns out completely unexpectedly, that voice diary was one of their favorite things. We didn't really expect that when we went into the project, but we, we actually learned a lot about how these sensors could provide really useful insights and also really keep people engaged. The voice diary kept these folks who had depression engaged throughout the whole 12 weeks of the study at much higher rates than ordinarily reported. So we learned a lot and we hope that some of those lessons can be useful. We've, we've published it, you know, can be useful to others to, to understand how digital health can be used to help people with, with mental health issues and, and hopefully help them get back to recovery faster. These are 
fascinating findings, Dr. Lee, and again, critically important work. And I, I think that it can give us all great hope for the future in terms of what we're learning, the insights we're gaining. And yeah, just the fact the diaries seem to be the thing that the patients, uh, the participants in the study really connected with. You know, one of the things that we always like to do on this podcast is share practical tips with other leaders and founders in tech and life sciences. Let me turn to you, Christine. What are some of the lessons or tips that you wish you had known earlier? Mm, That's a really good question. The first tip that I'll offer you is advice that was given to me when I was an entrepreneur many, many years ago, and that is focus. I think it's actually really important and absolutely true. And it's advice that I should have followed and I didn't. So uh, take a, take a, a lesson noted from me. But the reality is that there's a lot of really interesting ideas and places that you can go with these ideas, particularly in life sciences. There are so many places that you can move the needle. And so I really urge people to think about really delivering well on one or two things, as opposed to you know trying to cast their nets widely. That's going to make you incredibly successful. And then after you've got a few of those under your belt, you can expand um, as you feel appropriate. The second thing that I'll say for, for lawyers out there, I think you really want to hire people who are intellectually curious. You know, you want your team to constantly be seeking out new information and seeing legal trends that will help move your business forward, especially as your company grows and expectations continue to change. So when your team has a bunch of different diverse interests, what they're really doing is processing information from different places and in different ways. And if you're really lucky, you've got a team that will then make those connections between things that might not have been connected otherwise. And that's going to up your game as a lawyer to make sure that what you're really doing is enabling the business and removing obstacles for them rather than just issue spotting and creating more obstacles, which doesn't help the business at all. So that, that's, I think, something I really urge people do, to do on legal teams. Christine, such great tips, uh, focus and intellectual curiosity uh, and, and, and having people with diverse interests. I, I completely agree with you. Now, Dr. Lee, you are an author on top of everything else that you do. And I'd love if you could tell our audience a little bit about your book. Sure. And then I'd love to answer that question also about the tip, if that's okay. Oh, um, please, please do. If if you could share your tips as well, that would be very, very welcome. And then you have to tell us about your book. Okay. So the book and the tips are kind of related. So the the book uh, that I wrote that uh, came out uh, just this last year and the paperback edition actually just came out last month is called The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. It's a book that I wrote uh, that contains basically all the advice that I wish I'd known before I'd gotten into healthcare and healthcare leadership. It's written in the format of stories. It's meant to be an easy read that it explains a lot of the problems in healthcare, you know, like why our bills are so inscrutable and why prices keep going up on everything or, you know, why, why are we struggling with the, say the, the issues of uh, the uninsured. Anyway, does explain the problems, but then it really focuses on the solutions. And I love doing field trips. I had the chance to interview more than a hundred people across the country. So I really try to showcase many of the real successes across the country and so that we can learn together from them. 
And it's also intended to be a little provocative. It ends with some action plans for what we can each do. And those are targeted to say us as, as patients and family members or as people who are healthcare professionals or employers or as policymakers, for example. Uh, one of my favorite chapters is actually the one for employers, what employers can do to really uh, enhance the health of their employees. For example, and then of course there's chapters on data, technology, kind of what you would imagine. And it ties to my advice as well, because the book really encapsulates most of my thinking as a as a healthcare subject matter expert. And then of course, here I am now in this technology company um, surrounded by, you know, we affectionately call them former Googlers. And in this health tech space, I feel like the advice that I try to give everyone who joins is to really transform what could be a clash of cultures into a complement of cultures. Oh, I like that. Healthcare and technology, you know, they really couldn't be more different. In tech, you know, we talk about taking risks and disrupting and fail fast, whereas healthcare is totally risk averse, really slow to change, you know, suits and ties versus hoodies and high tops, let's say, you know, uh, but <laughs> right. it's, it's really that intersection where there is magic. So my advice is to be intentional across employee groups to really bring the two cultures together. It's another way of thinking about diversity, frankly. And so with the same kind of mindset, let's create kind of structures and systems within organizations to really embrace those differences and create onboarding tools for the different groups, build buddy systems, you know, like help everybody learn together and embrace the differences and then really kind of try to grow together. It's funny to hear you describe medicine, the industry of medicine. Um, I so often feel the same way about the industry of law and love you thinking about this in terms of a complement of cultures. And we are seeing everything be disruptive and, and honestly improve. And I think that being able to embrace those notions, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm looking forward to reading your book very much. And I, I completely agree with you that that chapter of wellness at work will be super popular with employers. It's, it's been, it's been a, a challenge and a desire of employers for many, many years now. And to find ways to uh, make a difference and improve the overall health of employees is, yeah, is, is a longstanding goal. All right. So sadly, this, this is bringing us toward the end of our podcast, but we love ending on a fun note. So we like telling our audience a, a fun fact or story, joke, favorite movie, whatever you want to talk about. And I'll I will start by sharing that my favorite plant is a fiddle leaf fig tree and I've grown oddly close to mine over the course of the pandemic. Um, you can pretty much ask me anything about proper care of fiddle leaves. So, so that's, that's me. Anything uh, you're both willing to share? Uh, I do actually, I have a, a very strong affection with my fiddle leaf too. Oh, oh, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I'm sure I don't know nearly as much as you do about yours, but I do feel the fondness. So great. Um, <laughs> my, I my agree with you, by the way, for having a green thumb, because if you gave me a fiddle leaf fig, I would kill it tomorrow. So <laughs> oh. to both of you. I'll, I'll, no. I'll teach you. No, 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 you wouldn't. Um, so my fun fact is that uh, I have a bunch of cousins. My father comes from a big family. And most of my cousins are 
engineers and doctors or pharmacists or, you know, in healthcare or in engineering. But I do have one youngest cousin who is, is, is a lot, a lot younger than me. And when we moved back to New York city and my aunt told me, Oh, you know, you really should go check out Eddie, your cousin, you know, and he's so much younger than me. I sort of almost sort of forgot about him. Um, <laughs> I said, yeah, what's, what's he doing? And she said, Oh, well, you know, he didn't go to medical school. And, you know, there was sort of all this disappointment in the tone. And she said, I think he's acting somewhere, you know, go, go and like, I don't know, call your other cousin and find out where he is. Yeah. So next thing you know, I find myself in the second row of Hamilton, watching my cousin, Eddie Lee, be the first Asian actor to actually play Hamilton on Broadway. No way. Hamilton on Broadway? No way. So Eddie, Eddie was a swing and he can play almost all the roles. He can dance and he can sing. He's incredibly talented. Wow. Uh, but he also covers the backup for the guy who he's like the second alternative backup or something like that. Yeah. Which means he's done Hamilton like, a you know, until the pandemic, he'd done it quite a few times. And now, of course, he's back on Broadway again. So that's my fun day. Hamilton. Okay. That's, that's amazing. That's so I mean, great. That's a pretty killer story. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, Christine. All right, I'm up to bat. Mine is not half as exciting, but, um, you know, it's funny. I used to go with the fact that as an avid traveler that I've been to all seven continents, but I feel like more and more people have been going to Antarctica. So I don't, I don't get to you know, throw out that seventh continent. <laughs> um, so I don't know that it counts anymore. So instead I'm going to, I'm going to give you a separate little fun fact from when I, I was a summer associate for the law geeks out there. Um, I can tell you that I, I did have the opportunity to play in a golf scramble as a summer associate with now Chief Justice Roberts when he was a partner at Hogan. And I can report that he was incredibly kind and incredibly patient, particularly uh, since I was not, we'll just say I was not an avid golfer. I was, I don't even know if I qualified as a beginner at that point. So um, it was, a, it was a lovely experience. Oh, you're killing me. Chief Justice Roberts. Oh my gosh, that is so cool, Christine, on both counts. I'm super impressed. Oh, thank you. This was so enlightening. And and again, just gives great hope for the future. I I very much enjoyed recording uh, this for you, with you and for our audiences. And as we kick off season two of the Future Work podcast, we're excited to announce companies like Biomilk and Emerald Cloud Labs uh, will be joining us to share their insights and journeys. So thanks so much for talking with us today, Dr. Lee and Christine. We look forward to seeing how Verily will continue to lead the charge across life sciences and healthcare. And thank you listeners for joining us. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.